Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. We are, for the first time in a long time, here at the college in our studio. Uh, we had to set everything back up because we had been recording at my home lately. Uh, I'm getting out and about better with my knee, um, and classes are back in session, so that's the two reasons we are recording here. And not only are we recording here, but we're doing something else that we haven't done in quite some time. This is not an episode. This is a winging it session, and uh, some of you, we've picked up a lot of new listeners recently. Uh, somehow, we produced not much this summer, and our numbers went uh, up a lot. So somehow we picked up listeners by producing less. Uh, Peter joked that what our listeners seem to be asking for is less let the bird fly. So some of you may be disappointed that we're hoping to get back here to a regular schedule. Um, I'm healing up. I'm moved. Mike, you're done traveling at least a little bit for a while. You were all around this summer. Um, Peter and Ben are still working. I don't know why they're so stubborn about this job thing. It sounds terrible. They have like, it's like 40 hours a week at least. I think they are expected it's like every, to be there. It's like every day. They really need to, mm-hmm. to get a gig in academia. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, we are recording a winging it session. And for those who are new, what this is, is we like to do these series uh, on, they're shorter sessions normally. We're going to have to try to keep it short today because it's been a while, and so we tend to get verbose. Um, but they, they tend to cover various topics. So we've done one on the liturgy, um, which was very well received. We still get people uh, coming up to us about that one. Um, as we went through kind of the Western Rite, we did a big overview of church history, kind of using Mark Knoll's book, uh, Turning Points, as a bit of a guide as far as how we broke it up. And now we are into a Winging It series on Martin Luther, his life and thought. Mike, do you have any idea what number we're on now? Are we in the 20s? I'm sure. And today we're going to get to the year 1521. And if you know Luther's years of uh, ministry, that means we're not very far. <laughs> um, and so we are not doing this as a kind of a big picture, grand scheme, hit a few highlights tersely. Um, but we're really trying to dig into different stages of Luther's life and then some of his key writings. And so we, um, before we had this extended break, had covered his big treatises of 1520, the big three especially, um, Babylonian captivity of the church to the Christian nobility of the German nation, and on the freedom of a Christian. And now we are getting today to what is probably one of the maybe top three moments that people are familiar with Luther's life, if they are familiar with it, that they know. Um, The first one would obviously be the nailing of the 95 Theses or Reformation Day. Uh, We've already covered that. And now we're to what I think would be the second biggest one for most um, because a lot of people are at least familiar with the words that he supposedly said here. And that is Luther at the Diet of Worms um, before Kaiser and Reich, um, before the uh, emperor and the kingdom or the empire. And uh, he is told to recant. And we're going to get to how he handles that, kind of the lead up to Worms. We'll touch on Mike. Hopefully we'll remember a little bit on his excommunication, which would have been a big deal for him. But we're excited to get back at this. Um, I am teaching the Luther course this semester. Mike and I hand that off. So you'll have that again next fall. Next fall. Right? And, uh, and then I'll get it in fall of uh, 2021. And so it's, it's good for us to get us in our Luther biographies, doing Luther research, and uh, it really, uh, we kind of have divvied up different biographies that we've been using to consult and go to. 
Um, maybe as a refresher, Mike, what are some of the ones you've been looking at? Well, this, These are beyond what we use in class. Yeah, this time I went to Roland Baton and then also uh, Kittleson, Luther, the Reformer, kind of. Those are probably the old standards, um, probably in the latter half of the uh, 20th century, I would guess, for English speakers, right? And so I didn't, I usually read Hendrix, but I, I didn't this time. And you, you've been doing Hendrix, who else? I've Roper. had uh, Roper, uh, Schilling, um, Oberman, uh, and, uh, and and then I, I usually like to look at Brecht if I can, but Brecht is three volumes and gets a little bit wordy <laughs> sometimes. Um, I'm especially uh, fresh in my mind today is Hendrix because we're actually right there in the Luther class um, tomorrow at Vorms uh, in the Hendrix biography. The Hendrix biography is visionary reformer. Mike and I both use that. Currently in the Luther course, we may switch that up at some point. But yeah, I, we should mention this. It was a good idea uh, that Wade had about this course, uh, the Luther course that we sort of share, is that we they each <coughs> each uh, semester they read two biographies and about 400 pages of Luther's writing. So it's it's pretty uh, pretty intense. Uh, but you had the idea at the end of the semester is just giving like the prefaces or the first chapters of a variety of biographies and saying now that you've read these two critique these you know and so yeah. the class is it erickson who does the classic who's the guy that yeah erickson <coughs> does the uh luther Freudian hated his kinda, father yeah. you know a psychoanalytical approach and uh, so the class this semester is monday wednesday friday i've always taught it thursday tuesday thursday in the past so i actually ended up with some extra class period so yeah we're gonna have a historiography section and look at intros and conclusions or prefaces or select chapters mm -hmm. from some and say now you've read um two books on Luther and Luther and himself. a bunch of Luther himself. What do you think about this? And I hope that it beyond, I mean, historically it should be helpful for them to get a sense for um, how many different takes or interpretations of historical figures or events there can be. But just regarding Luther too, to kind of get, well, this person's maybe a little bit off on this because they don't get the theological aspects. This person's maybe a little bit off because they don't get the political or this person is biased by mm -hmm. um, their take on this, or this is anachronistic. And so I'm, I'm interested to see how they handle it. There may be some grumbling of, oh, man, enough biography. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm, I'm hoping they'll say this is a neat chance to read this, not just to memorize dates and places, but to see now uh, you know, how we can really um, weigh, ponder, uh, assess uh, historical writing. Well, that's a great idea, and I'm going to use it and uh, not give you credit for it. Well, I have used plenty of your stuff in the past without credit. Uh, the new book, Let the Bird Fly... <laughs> A lot of the sanctification stuff ripped off from Mike, and uh, no footnote for him. And no royalties. Are, yeah, you are did write the foreword for free, too, so that was uh, <laughs> much appreciated. Uh, Mike, why don't you lead us off? But because I know we'll forget later, I'll, uh, I am really caffeinated. The Spectrum guy had to come this morning, <laughs> and so I didn't want to bother him, so I just sat there and drank coffee and read. And, uh, That's a local, local cable internet person. Yeah, person. and so. Uh, <laughs> Thankfully, I normally am just really able to focus well anyways, um, but because I don't want to forget it and jump all around, maybe you can get us started and just uh, talk a little bit about Luther's excommunication, but maybe if you can lead off with, um, many Christians are familiar with that term excommunication. In our own day in Lutheran circles, we still use it, um, but it's not what all excommunication for Luther would have entailed maybe isn't understood by someone who's only thinking of how excommunication maybe comes up in a Lutheran parish. Now, am I making sense, Mike? But yep, maybe sure. you can lay the groundwork. So just break down the word, right? Uh, excommunication, don't think communication, but think communion. 
And so you're a part of this group, you're part of this communion, and you are exiled, you are exited out of there. And so, uh, you know, biblically we think about in these terms that if somebody is caught in sin, stubborn in sin, remains in sin, doesn't think they need grace, well, then you're not trusting God for salvation, you're trusting yourself, and that's kind of the one thing you're not supposed to do. And so you're outside of the realm of God's grace. He says, okay, you want to be judged by your own actions? You will be. And so in a, a show that the church is saying this is the case, you're not allowed to come to communion. You are outside of the, the communion. And so it was a very pastoral thing, um, may call it church discipline. Very, very, I wouldn't say early on, but uh, it doesn't take very long for um, uh, bishops and pastors and theologians to use this as a, a threat and as a stick against other theologians, and often rightfully so. So if you, if you believe that Christ is not 100% uh, true man, 100% true God, you pull that string, you don't have salvation, and so your teaching is... Uh, uh, heretical and so you're excommunicated and then uh, you can see the danger of course that this can be used um, as a political thing right so I, I excommunicate new you no, I excommunicate you right and that and, will happen if you yeah. if you listen to the church history winging it series when we get to the great schism uh, the east and the west both will excommunicate each other right. rather famously yeah and so for us today pastorally it it should not be used as a club but it should be used a last resort and uh, I never had to excommunicate anybody. I threatened it once, and it actually, that law actually worked in the person. I haven't excommunicated anybody either. Yeah. But I don't know if we that should, makes uh, me a bad pastor. We should excommunicate Peter just well, so we get practice at it. Sometimes I want to excommunicate you. So if yeah, I, but I don't want to be. I, right. That's a bad thing. Would you excommunicate me No, back? I think you're a fine Christian. Okay, thank you. If you excommunicated me, would I excommunicate you? Yeah. I don't think so. I think I would probably just kind of go around campus and grumble a bit about how you excommunicate me and it doesn't seem fair. So for Luther, it, you know, in the, in the sense of the medieval church, the Roman Catholic church was the church. And, and the, the doctrine of the Roman Catholic church was if you're not under the papacy, basically, we'll say it very shorthand here. It's more complicated than that. But if you're not under the uh, papal control, you are not in church in the church which means you're not a believer which means you're not going to be in heaven you're not saved and the and the roman catholic church just to be clear this time too it wasn't just the church that was catholic the society right. um the kingdom was viewed as catholic too so this isn't um you might be excommunicated from a lutheran parish okay and i'm not taking communion at that parish there's um as church and state you kind of have this medieval synthesis thing still going there's a lot as mike mentioned this is why it can be a political club as well you know you might not be shopping at Meyer anymore either right. because Meyer, if they're good Christians, isn't supposed to to sell a heretic goods. Right. You know? And uh, and this gets played out a little bit. I don't know if we'll get into the weeds that much, but uh, this gets played out with due process. You, you don't owe Luther anything if he's a heretic. You don't owe him right passage or, or safe passage to uh, this imperial diet. And so uh, Luther is excommunicated because of his writings. He, he did stand up in, in Augsburg, uh, maybe not as bravely as we are told that he's or, or led to believe that he stood up at the Diet of Worms. Um, but he, his writings are enough. Um, you have uh, uh, his Leipzig um, opponent, uh, 
Eck, who has gone down to Rome and has kind of kind of said, we got to do something. You got to love that. Yeah, he inserts himself into inserts it. Inserts himself. It's not like they this. ask him to come down. He gets a, a furlough or a sabbatical from from campus. And, and I get the impression that they probably weren't always so happy to have Johan around. Uh. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> there's a papal bull threatening excommunication first. This is excruciate domina, which is the, the Latin for arise, O Lord, a quote from uh, the Psalms. I can't remember which one. And uh, it says, you have six months to, to recant. And so um, at about the six-month period, there's a burning of the bull. So that's clear Are that it's not going to Are you going to give me six months, Mike? Will you give me warning? Yeah, I will, obviously. Okay, nice. Yeah, six months, which is more than generous, right? I think so. So um, the official bull of excommunication then comes out in the early part of 1521. Now, let's set the stage for the Diet of Worms. Remember, Diet is a meeting. It's an imperial meeting, so of the empire. Like a moving congress. Yep, and so this is going often would go from different um, imperial cities. Uh, sometimes we would remain in the same city, uh, but there, you know, the imperial diet of Augsburg, and here's one of Worms. And we should not say, oh, the diet of Worms was called to deal with Luther. That was part of it. They had a lot of business going on, yeah. and in fact, it is a year, almost a year long, right? That they that they that they are. They meeting. usually stretch on. Yeah. Yeah, and so this is not like this is. When they started the diet, they're not even sure if Luther's going to show up. It's not a major if, agenda item. They don't. It's it's just a part of this very very complicated uh, political uh, system. And you think our Congress is 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 um, difficult to always understand the machinations of what's going on. Imagine an emperor who has elected by um, <clears throat> electors in Germany, but kind of sort of needs the papal uh, okay to do that. Um, but the Pope doesn't, in this situation, the Pope doesn't really want Charles V, who is the emperor, to be emperor. He would have actually wanted Luther's defender at times, uh, Frederick, to be that. And then you have the French king um, and, and mixed up into these politics, and you also have the Turkish um, threat over into the east. So it's a very, very complicated thing. And And I, you know, we're always told to kind of throw the Habsburgs under the bus here, especially uh, Charles V. But there are some times when I go, this guy's got a lot on his plate, and there's some wise things that he actually does. I'm not saying he was a perfect emperor or whatever, um, but considering his situation, what he has to deal with, um, I, kind of I kind of appreciate him a little bit more. And we, we tend to <laughs> think of rulers from the past as we would think of modern rulers. You know, um, think of the President of the United States or the Speaker of the House. Communication-wise, logistics-wise, they are way more in touch with everything. Um, even though we have a huge country, um, it's much uh, smaller in the sense of uh, governing it than the Holy Roman Empire would have been. These are—it's um, a collection of various kingdoms, languages, culture. Um, yes, maybe a lot of people are at Vorms. But they're making decisions about things that are far away. Mm -hmm. Letters take a long time um, to get back and forth. Charles doesn't speak German that well. Um, you have all sorts of personalities who don't just have constituencies to which they were elected, but often they're monarchical themself, themselves. And so uh, this is not an easy thing to govern. And so when we think of, well, how did Charles handle the Luther thing? The Luther thing is like one of all sorts of things he's trying to navigate. Mm -hmm. And so I would agree with you. I mean, I'm, 
Um, I but always give Charles. In, cr- let me interrupt one thing. Yep. But the one thing that did tie them was their religion, and so Luther is yep. a unique threat. But you can't just say, "Oh, Charles V." In fact, this is what Aleander wants to do: is to just get rid of Luther. Problem right. solved. No, 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 no. He's got so much yep. political stuff with the Germans that he has to deal with. And you have not just Luther religiously, but um, Luther kind of is becoming a German figure. So you have Germanness in that, and in uh, this um. It, I, we just we, we have to understand there's no internet, there's no secure phone lines. Um, Charles is, what he has to govern on paper is just completely ungovernable. And as you mentioned, Mike, he's just been elected. This is, think of a president in his first hundred days where we, we always put so much weight on that. And it's, you know, technically you get four years to govern. But that first hundred days is going to kind of set the tone. You, they try to be more bipartisan usually in those 100 days. They try to get some key legislation through that they can kind of put their mark on. And so, you know, this is um, really important for Charles for setting the tone for his reign as well. I always give him credit to, you know, after he does come back and conquer Lutheran territories, he gets to Wittenberg and some of his Spanish soldiers with him want to dig up Luther's bones and desecrate them. And Charles says, I wage war with the living, not the dead. And I always think that was kind of a mensch move <coughs> mm-hmm. too. Um, I obviously disagree with him excommunicating or supporting um, Luther's excommunication and then declaring him, uh, you know, an outlaw. But to be fair to him, he never enforces it. Nope. Uh, so it's someone to have a bit of sympathy with. Yeah, and uh, to the letter thing, you know, I, I don't know. We probably, it'll be a little bit too boring, to, and I don't have all the details straight about, you know, when Luther's going to come, when he's excommunicated, uh, the invitation is recanted, the invitation is brought again or whatever. Rescinded. And then Rescinded, yeah. And then so... Uh, yeah, the, by the time the letter goes out, right, and is returned, a lot of stuff has happened, and that's the frustration that's going on here. And We picture it like email, right. like, oh, this stuff must be happening and happening. There's a lot of waiting. Right, there's a lot, a lot of waiting, and so I, I think I made the mistake of saying that the, the diet lasted for a while. I think I have maybe half the year, about half the year, maybe five months, um, that it lasts. I may, I may be wrong on that, but, but you it also, starts to be fair to you, Mike, you have people coming early and lingering yep. late. There's, there's stuff happening. Right. And I can, so I'm thinking in my mind, okay, it officially starts in January. Um, you know, Luther's there in April, 1521. Um, I remember dates from November and stuff like that, but I may be wrong, but, um, it certainly lasts a long period and Luther is sort of towards the tail end, but, but, uh, more in the middle there. So, um, maybe we should talk about He's kind of coming before Congress, think in modern terms, when Congress is getting ready to, uh, what do they call that, dismiss or disband for a while? Mm-hmm. They take a break. Mm-hmm. There's been a lot of governing and decisions that were made before Luther's appearing. Mm-hmm. This is not, um, you know, the first thing on the agenda. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's been, that means there's been buildup to it, but there's also just, it, it kind of puts in perspective, um, A, maybe this wasn't viewed as the most pressing thing, but B, Maybe it was viewed as pressing, but no one wanted to deal with it quite yeah. yet. And we still see that in politics today of yeah. the thing that keeps guy kind of getting kicked down the road because it is that difficult to deal yeah. with. And there is question of whether he's going to show up or not. And so there's political stuff going on before the uh, diet and during the first part of the diet for Luther himself. Should I go or should I not go? Um, do I have to go? Can we get out of this? Um, you and know, maybe, that kind of maybe stuff. you can expand a little Mike, you mentioned the danger of... He has a safe conduct, but if he is viewed as a heretic, um, maybe if you can just briefly, um, the experience of Jan Hus 
very similar, also having a, a safe conduct. And if you remember when we talked about the Leipzig debate, Luther will be identified with Huss, which mm-hmm. makes Hearns' case even more. But but why why just from a, a practical standpoint would so many people be nervous about Luther going when he has a safe conduct? Right. You think what could happen to him then? Right. The Council of Constance, um, and I'm, I'm blanking on the dates right now, called Jan Huss to, uh, to account for his teachings, which were... Uh, you know, proto Reformation teachings, not exactly Communion Luther. And two kinds, yeah, and um, you have safe conduct, and then um, then they then they kill him. And the reason given was you don't give safe conduct to a heretic. So think think if you're in the biblical sense, you know, uh, Saint Paul had Roman citizenship, and so he could play that card. But if you didn't have citizenship, you know, he you know. He, he doesn't have as many rights. And so a heretic doesn't have rights. And so that is in the back of the mind they, of Luther. Then Eck accuses him or around there, uh, people are accusing him of, of, uh, of being a Hussite. And he's like, no. And then he reads Huss and he goes, <laughs> actually, I kind of am. So he's put that self on him. So the identity with Huss, knowing the, and this is a big, everybody would have known this historical tidbit that Huss was, was killed at the, the Council of And Constance. the Council is 1414 to 1418. Yeah. So it's about the, it's the centennial almost of the... Think, you know, Abraham Lincoln Gettysburg Address kind of thing. Like, it's a couple hundred years ago, but we, we all know at least some of the details. Defining. So Luther is gonna, has been given safe uh, passage, and uh, there's a lot of people, Luther himself saying, yeah, right. But also the protect, even the Catholic protectors um, of, of the German people who are, as much as they are Catholic, they are German. And they don't really like this idea that a non-German emperor can call a council and say, um, I give you safe conduct and then and then just kill one of its own citizens. Because it could so happen to, to them when they upset someone. Yep. And so uh, these, you know, these staunch uh, uh, defenders of the Roman Catholic faith—they're still German. They're still Italian. They're still French, and often first. And you know what we know about Eliander, who is the papal nuncio. Um, I think that was the right title for him there. Um, papal representative. He's the guy there to make sure the Pope gets his way. Right. Um, <clears throat> He's kind of alluding to the fact, like, we don't need to give in to Luther because he doesn't have these rights because technically he has been excommunicated, right? And so this is where the church and state comes. I I don't think Charles V wants to ruffle the German feathers. He can't because he needs that money. He needs their support. He needs their troops. Um, and, And he's also kind of a rival of the Pope. It's not lost on him that the Pope didn't want him. Well, to and be it's, the, to people, be the emperor. people hear that Holy Roman Emperor, and the Habsburgs saw themselves as the defenders of the Catholic Church. This is part of who they are. But it was just a few years earlier that um, Charles' troops sacked Rome. Yeah. Um, so it's not like he wasn't willing um, to go in and uh, deal with the papacy when he was upset, too. Absolutely. And so, <laughs> you know, you when you read some of these details of then— the okay he's declared an outlaw he gives luther every chance to get out of the dodge um he does not press the issue like he could have um and then with frederick too uh we're getting ahead of ourselves not signing um the 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 um the declaration at the end the edict of Worms. i think i'm getting that right and uh, i messed up the sack of romans 1527 yeah. so it's six years after this and so um you know it it's it, charles v no 
he's he you're right he's this is early in his reign he's not ready down to put put the hammer down and when he does and and i think reading from from his words his own words of why he did this they were more than just uh official documents um these i think literally i think he was being honest you know he says i'm descended from a long line of christian emperors of this noble german nation and of the catholic kings of spain and i have a duty here to defend the faith and and i'm being pushed into this i i think he actually is maybe uh at times can be genuine and idealistic i mean eventually he retires to a monastery right uh you know and so uh, again sometimes i think we we paint charles v a little bit i think he's a more complicated figure than we want so the, 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 the diet, the meetings going on, there's all sorts of pomp and circumstance. There's all sorts of messengers, letters going all the way around. They have all this business going on. And then Luther finally shows up. And uh, maybe I'll kick it to you to uh, explain the pomp <laughs> um, that, that uh, accompanies Luther. Uh, yes, he is just a regular old monk being... Uh, put before the, all the power of the papacy and the, and the emperor, but he's got the people on his side. And it is quite a scene when he arrives at, at Firms. Yeah, I, I think uh, we have to remember pretty much every town he enters on the way, there's the possibility of being welcomed like a hero and also the possibility of being killed. And usually both possibilities in one. And so he's going to get a warm welcome in Erfurt, but he knows he has enemies there. Um, there's going to be different towns that they stop in that there's horsemen sent out to greet him. Uh, he gets into Worms, and some people from that time have pictured it, or writings at least, some of them partisan. It's almost like a Palm Sunday entry. <coughs> and he does mention it, right? And Because he says, this, this is my Palm Sunday. That means my Good Friday might be coming. Right, yeah. and there's a writing um, that's about Worms. It's written by someone who supported the Lutherans. It's called The Passion of Martin Luther. I had a student who did a very good paper on it. I translated it for her. Shout out to Sammy Hebner. Um, but uh, there's those two things always in Luther's mind. Um, there's the big welcome, but there's also, you know, um, in one at one point while he's st- still in Wittenberg, there's a um, rumor spread that there's a doctor who can make himself invisible who's going to come assassinate Luther. And you might go, come on, that's not possible. <laughs> well, you got to remember this is 1520, 1521. Um, there's people who are nervous about that. And, uh, and so he makes it into Worms, and this reception obviously unsettles people because also one of the big things that these D's or diets were for um, was to deal, to stave off possibilities of insurrection or to deal with previous insurrections that had taken place. And if you're a political ruler and you want stability, if you're a new emperor, the last thing you want to see is a bunch of common people or knights, um, people with uh, military power, getting really amped up for the underdog. Um, this is, uh, I mean, they are very nervous about stability at this point in Germany. We'll see the peasants' revolts that come in a few years, which will be disastrous. Um, and so Luther receives this big welcome, but he also knows there's always this looming threat. And so... He makes his way into uh, into Worms, and it's really kind of he's there, and he doesn't quite know when he's going to be summoned or what exactly is going to happen. And the day he is summoned, he's kind of told that mor- that morning, 
um, you're going to appear before the emperor this afternoon. And, I always and think he's about, hoping for a debate. Right. right but. And I always just think what, that, what those hours in between must have been like. Um, I've been told sometimes I have a same-day meeting for something, um, sometimes by someone higher up than me. And even just for something like that, I can get nervous. Like, great, what did I do? Um, it had to be a very emotional and stressful time. And he's going to be called um, before the emperor. And uh, the hall is uh, not huge, but it's big enough to accommodate everyone. And from the sounds of it, I uh, had decent acoustics, which is good since Luther's going to have some nerves. And, uh, oh, what's the name of the guy who's interrogating him? It sounds like, Ak, but is it Ackingen? Or it's something with an Eck in it as well, who's going to be asking him questions. Von, uh, von der Ecken, Johann von der Ecken. <coughs> Excuse me, allergy season has really hit me right now. Um, and uh, he's going to be asked first, his books are before him, and uh, did you write them? Which, uh, you know, you kind of picture them, you glance at the books, and yeah, I recognize those, those are my books. And, then and, the second, and I wrote more, he says. Yeah, and I wrote more. <laughs> um, and there's maybe some at the printers right now, for all they know. And uh, the second question is going to be the more difficult question is are you, do you want to stand by their content? And this is the very dangerous question, right? This is why he's there. Uh, and Luther himself is going to try to distinguish works. He's going to say, there's some works that everyone here would agree are good and useful. There's a, others where I got a little worked up and maybe my tone wasn't great. I attacked people that I shouldn't have. Right. I'm sorry. Yeah. And then there's going to be works where people disagree with his teaching. Um, but he does a very sensible thing. He says, can I have some time to think about this? Um, when he's asked to recant. Um, and the emperor gives him 24 hours. And you have to imagine that's a anxious 24 hours. And it's not just anxious for Luther. It's anxious for Spalatin, um, who is kind of, uh, you know, um, Frederick's second-hand man, the elector's second-hand man. Uh, the elector is obviously nervous. And you have a lot of people who are probably there and see this as a spectacle to see what will Luther do. The next day, he is um, called before now to answer if he would recant or not. And it's then that he's going to have to, um, I mean, he had to kind of know he's not going to get another 24 hours. He's there to give an answer. Do you recant or not? He tries a little bit to get a discussion going. It's made clear this is not here for a discussion. And you have to imagine you've been summoned to Capitol Hill um, with the president and vice president seated as well. <clears throat> You're before all the powers of the land, but not even that. All, let's say you have an academic field. Many of the leading scholars in those fields are also there. Or if they're not in the room, they're in town, or they're just uh, a phone call email away to be consulted. And then Luther's famous reply then is, uh, as it's often quoted, Unless I am convinced otherwise by evidence from Scripture or incontestable arguments, which is sometimes put as sound reason, I remain bound by the Scripture I have put forward. As long as my conscience is captive to the Word of God, I neither can nor will recant, since it is neither safe nor right to act against conscience. God help me. Amen. And uh, historians will sometimes debate, did he say all of this? Did he say it just like this? End of the day, he said something like this. Um, I, don't, I see little reason not to think this is pretty true to the content of what he replied. 
uh, and this is a big moment. Many people then think, well, the emperor must have ruled right on the spot. Um, he must have come out and made some official decree, but that actually is going to take time. Mm-hmm. Um, Charles is not going to uh, um, rule on the spot, although you can picture many people in the room not happy, many people in the room very happy. Um, Elector Frederick later tells Spalatin he spoke well, but a little harshly, um, and so there's going to be this kind of period of waiting that will take. Um, trying to think when it is the emperor uh, will actually rule on this. Is it about a month, Mike? Yeah, so the edict is originally May 6th, but I think he has to wait till like people are gone until he finally gets consent. And so it's not until the end of, end of May. Um, and then he also, I think, kind of kicked it to a committee. And he really look to the electors for advice and all of this. And I, I think he waits for the, I believe it was the electors to say, there's not going to be any resolution. You know, what do we do? There's, there's nothing you have to do. So, so the emperor, I get the impression the emperor wants the backing of the electors and he gets that. Although they don't all sign, right? They don't all, um, aren't hundred percent for it. And then he's, he's waiting for consent. He's waiting for, um, what the opposite of a quorum would be, right? <laughs> Enough yeah. people are left that he has to go. And maybe just a couple... A month later, it's published. Yeah. Right? And so by this time, Luther's gone, right? And, and the idea... We'll, and he's we'll, kind of told by his protectors, the safe conduct is still good. Right. Use it while you got it. Right. And we'll get that, I'm sure, next time that, you know, how, how, how clandestine was his, his trip. It was, there was some pomp and circumstance in his leaving, and then, and then he is, quote-unquote, kidnapped. But maybe just a couple of points on the, the, how these leaders must have felt with this situation. You know, they got the pull of doing what's right for, for their Catholic faith. And maybe before this even, Mike, um, the, is it Elector, Elector Brandenburg, not just Prince, right? And Elector Frederick allegedly almost got in a fist fight yeah, that had to be, had to be broken up by another. Yeah, it wasn't two electors that had to be broken up by another. And that was before this. So things right. were tense. Right. And, uh, you know, Eliander, <laughs> he has a, this exaggeration of the pomp and circumstance that just kind of came out um, spontaneously when Luther came in. He said, nine of ten are, are uh, you know, uh, yelling Luther, and the other one is death to the Roman Curia, right? <laughs> you know, like everybody's Luther side. And th- this little detail that I had, I, I had not read, I had not read anywhere else, but I thought it was interesting that, um, you know, when the emperor felt now that he had sufficient backing to proceed with the Edict of Worms, which would had declared Luther an outlaw, uh, someone put uh, a placard stamped with the Bunchu, which is the symbol of the peasants' revolt, the sandal clog of the working man. I'm reading from Baton here. In contrast to the high boot of the noble, like think about someone riding a horse. Um, that was like, like them's fighting words. Right. Like there's going to be a revolt, you know, now who put it there? You know, some thought, well, maybe it was just the trying to uh, the other side trying to discredit Luther or whatever. But that kind of thing puts the fear of God into um, a ruler. Right. Um, I'm trying to think of uh, there's got to be an historical example of something like that, you know, like um, a a union just formed, you know, and if you're the boss of a big corporation, (laughs) That was a big step, yikes. Yep. Um, uh, protests right now going on in Hong Kong. Well, think of the that American kind of Revolution and 
um, you know, in the time leading up to that, there's revolutionary symbols mm -hmm. that when they appear, the British get a little nervous. Yeah. And so uh, this is very, very tense. And you can understand why Charles V is is tiptoeing through this as much as he can. And so they are the electors um, and trying to smooth this over as easy as they can. But the, the, the wild fire has been lit. Um, the, you know, the Reformation is not going to go away. Um, and so I wonder if, if not just not at this point yet, but eventually we know it's going to be how do you maintain this without <laughs> full, full civil war, uh -huh. which, of course, does not happen. There is going to be a civil, basically a civil war in the in the in the Thirty Years' War, if you want to call it that, over a lot of these things. Although a lot of different uh, uh, influences and and passions going on with that, but yeah. So the Diet of Worms, uh, you know, I always taught my catechism kids. You know, I lead it up in this dramatic story, like I'm a good you know Lutheran, like, and then Luther stood before the emperor, and and he said, uh, uh, you know, the the uh, the the nuncio says, you know, are you ready to recant and he says can i have a day to think about it <laughs> only later does he say perhaps here i stand and and what's interesting about his you know what what you read about him his response to that is i need to be shown by scripture or by plain reason right we kind of jump over that and we you know uh, us bible believing christians that if you can show by reason that i have made a mistake as well reason was not the enemy to luther it was the the will that was the problem and twisted reason so that we could not trust human reason in spiritual matters. But uh, it's kind of an interesting thing when we think about this very poignant moment in, in at uh, the Diet of Firms. So I'll let you close us out here with any details. If not, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll come back and, and we'll be headed to the Wartburg. Yeah, I just think, you know, the big thing to remember is as a result of this, Luther now is going to stand condemned by church and state. Uh, he's going to be excommunicated, and he's also going to be outlawed. And this will radically change his life because Luther will not be able to freely travel for the rest of his life without a significant, very realistic fear of assassination. Um, so he's going to largely have to spend the rest of his life within Saxony, and even then, a limited sphere of Saxony. Uh, and so... We see now both church and state have aligned in opposition to Luther. Um, and then I think the thing to remember, uh, rather than this leading Luther to withdraw from public life or from theology, this will spur him on. And something we've said a number of times throughout this series is, uh, and we're stealing this from others who have used this line, but Luther is an occasional theologian. His theology is driven by the circumstances, and it's going to be, this is going to be yet just another event that will drive him deeper and deeper into theology, um, both to defend his teaching, uh, but at the same time to, uh, to explore the scriptures and unpack the, what are the consequences of this? What is um, the significance? And so uh, church and state will align against Luther, thankfully. Um, we, I've used illustrations of Congress, but something that breaks down with using a modern illustration is the Holy Roman Empire has no real federal government like we have federal government. Um, imagine there being like a ton of states' rights. And uh, his prince is still, for now, willing to protect him. And so although the federal government, if we want to speak of it like that, has uh, condemned him, 
Uh, it's kind of like uh, with legalization of marijuana. Uh, marijuana is not really technically legalized anywhere. It's still uh, um, illegal according to federal law. But we have a number of states who have kind of said, oh, yeah, it's illegal, wink, wink. Mm-hmm. Um, this is going to be the game that uh, Elector Frederick is going to play, except the marijuana is Martin Luther. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and so we will unpack how the elector is going to go about trying to protect Luther in a way that allows him to save face um, and, and not simply just be a, you know, a heretic lover. Um, as we pick up in the next Wing It session. I'm glad we got back at these, Mike. Um, I hope you all will enjoy them and tune back in for them. We thank our listeners who have been sharing and downloading. Uh, it was really just surprising when we checked the statistics for the summer, and we're, we're really grateful for that. And uh, we're going to get into some fun stuff coming up here in, in Luther's life. Until then, let the bird fly. Another round, another round, another round, one more round won't get me down. 